Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen, who should probably know better. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rock to the cradle of rhythm and blues. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is, is here. It's time for you to cough and make rude noises, Mark. Okay. How's <laughs> that? All right. Howard Lapidus, manager of the star, is yet to stumble in to our beautifully appointed studio facilities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he should be here as soon as the fog clears. There's a fog upon L.A. Apparently our friend has lost his way. There's a fog upon L.A. Well, that's a frog. Excuse me. <laughs> always get those two confused. Which reminds me, an acidic rabbi walks into a bar. He does. Sitting on his shoulders, a big green frog. Bartender looks up and says, where the hell did you get that thing? Frog says, oh, Brooklyn, they're all over the place. Yeah, no, I, I thought he'd say, the synagogue. <laughs> yeah, close. Uh, I think that's funnier. Yeah. Synagogue. It's, it's a synagogue. One, one word. <laughs> it's so smart. Well, why don't you say hello to our guest? Uh, oh, hi, dear. Hi there, <laughs> Anthony M. DeSeph. How are you? Great to have you back, taking time out of your busy schedule of... Being uh, busy. Busy, being busy, keeping track of the New York mobsters. Yes, indeed. Do they ever give you reviews of your... What is that? Do they ever give you reviews of your books, you know, the mobsters? I think they, they probably have, yes. They've come in, you know, you don't know what you get under those... Uh, Amazon uh, reviews because people come in with all sorts of uh, strange names, so you have no idea. But I, yeah, I think I have. Yes, I have. In fact, but they don't call you up at home and go, "We're going to get you for this one." No, there's nothing like that. I mean, people say they're, they're sort of accurate. These books, they say. <laughs> so I like that sort of accurate. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as close as you're going to get. You know, as a true crime author, we do everything we can to be accurate and correct. And uh, you and I were discussing uh, privately on email back and forth. You raised some questions about the vetting the accuracy of some of the statements in my forthcoming true crime book. And so, yes, strange as it may sound, uh, I have at least two, <laughs> at least two verifiable sources <laughs> like a journalist should. Well, so long as you do, and you're comfortable. <clears throat> yeah, I usually I try to get more than that, you know, just in case there's collusion of inaccuracy, which is also mm -hmm. a possibility. Yes. That uh, as a journalist, you probably, uh, I supposedly qualify, but if I ever had to get on the witness stand, they'd probably rip me to shreds because of no actual collegiate training in this, what they call forensic journalism. Where, as I'm sure you uh, can do as well, you could probably read a, uh, a police report or a deposition and tell where the lies start. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're, yeah they're monitoring that in the NYPD, the uh, 
where they have adverse credibility findings for cops. They now monitor that as part of their uh, really uh, monitoring process. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. Does anyone actually take you know do anything with that info? Well, yeah, they do. They put it in. They have a system. Al, I'm going to write about this at some point soon, uh, where they collate all this information, things like adverse credibility, uh, questions about uh, cases that uh, get dismissed, and they sort of use it to, uh, you know, at the one hand for training and also to see if they have potential problems with particular cops. So this happens. Wow. Uh, this is a new thing. That seems to the be judges, a... The uh, judges... The judges are the ones who come up with adverse credibility. Sometimes the prosecutors, they, uh, uh, you know, they send letters uh, to, the, to the PD and they deal with it. They have to now under the under some court settlement they had over the stop and frisk litigation. This is a part of an offshoot of that. Yeah, we've had some pretty strange stories uh, told on here by corrupt cops, formerly corrupt cops. Um, as Michael Gordine was saying, how they, they had a quota system. They had to arrest X number of people for drugs. And they would go to a bus stop. And, and as people got off the bus, they just arrest all of them and using the same drugs for all of them. Oh, wow. Where, where, where was that? LA? New York. New York, okay. And uh, oh, just some other weird ones. Of course, there's the one in Philadelphia where it was over a 1,000 uh, cases had to be uh, overturned because it was this group of five cops that were planting evidence and doing all sorts of stuff, and one of them finally... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was like from somewhere in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, yeah. That was a big one. Over a thousand cases. That's because I think they hassled the wrong guy. Uh, some uh, gentleman of color who was very influential in the government happened to take the wrong exit off the freeway and stopped and asked the police and, uh, for directions, and they threw him across in front of his car. I <laughs> well, you're asking the wrong people. Uh, he, however, made a phone call. The next thing you know, the whole thing came crashing down. Mm -hmm. That can happen. It can. Uh, Mazes me, you know, he uh, did the book Betrayal in Blue with uh, uh, Ken Urell, uh, supposedly the second most corrupt cop in the contemporary history of the NYPD. And, gee, uh, Internal Affairs knew for a long, long time that Michael Dowd and uh, Kenny were doing this stuff. But they didn't do anything about it because they didn't want a scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what happens, yes. Politics uh, uh, takes priority. It has. You know, it, it, I don't think you'd see that now, but it, it has. I think it's still much of it comes to play, perhaps, as you could send me semi-straight on this. This whole human trafficking thing, the first guest we had on our show talking about human trafficking, and this goes back to years, years ago now, the guy was full of crap. Not full of crap in terms of... of uh, of the statistics, but when I looked at who was on, like on his board of directors and one thing and another, it wasn't. <coughs> excuse me, that wasn't Mark. That was me. It wasn't people known for uh, wanting to put their fingers on the scales of justice. People known for their, you know, commitment to justice and equity. People just to the right of Attila the Hun, and that on further private talks with him, what it boiled down to was increased punitive legislation for people of color. Well, how would that how would that work? Okay, here's how it works. You got a, a 14 year old girl in Florida lives with her parents. 
She gets up and goes to uh, some other city. But all expenses are paid for, not by her parents, but by, I think it's her cousin or someone who's not related to her, another fellow. She gets a place there, a motel there or whatever, and starts turning tricks. Mm-hmm. Once she's done turning tricks, uh, a couple months, she goes back home. <laughs> she says, folks, everything's fine. Then she goes to some other city. The guy who's paying the bill is her cousin or something. Under the human trafficking laws, they hammer him on human trafficking and send him away for 500,000 years. Mm-hmm. Consecutively. Consecutively. He goes considered part of it concurrently, mm-hmm. the first 5,000. <clears throat> and yet the, shall we say what I put in quotes, real human trafficking isn't one, you know, one spot in Florida. You know, uh, it's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be something with more behind it than some guy working with his cousin. You follow what I'm well, saying? Then, then you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, I mean, the, the whole human trafficking situation has evolved over the years since about 2000. They started um, targeting these international networks. Uh, some what you you know what you saw in the Florida case. Uh, that was you know that was going back to the year 2000. And then they they came to realize that there's domestic trafficking. It's not all this international stuff with immigrants. Uh, it's domestic trafficking where young women, usually of color, uh, but not often, not always, uh, because there are some Caucasian girls who get caught up in this as well, who are inveigled, coerced, or uh, persuaded uh, to turn tricks. And, you know, they get uh, taken in by Johns. And it basically... Is human trafficking because you're dealing with coercion, and these women, you know, they may be women of color. Uh, very often they are, and this is where they started targeting uh, domestic prosecutions as opposed to the international stuff that you saw typical of uh, what happened in Florida. And so this has evolved over the years, and the state people, the local people, and particularly in New York State, are targeting Johns uh, who take young women sometimes as young as 14, and put them into the life, and they take their money, and they really control them. It it fits the definition of human trafficking. And this is uh, another way of going after prostitution. The women themselves are, as we're seeing in New York, at least in New York City, are given services and taken away from that life and trying to give some sort of rehabilitation and reunited with their families when they can. Uh, so things have sort of evolved over time, uh, and we're seeing more of the targeting of domestic prostitution with human trafficking laws. Go ahead, Mark. You have a question? Yeah. Did you uh, follow the story that came coming out of Seattle in the last couple of days? No. Which one was that? I that there uh, are the massage parlors that are really rub and tug uh, facilities. <laughs> My favorite ones. Yeah. And uh, they uh, they. They took over a three-year period. They took down the uh, a handful of individuals, but it's mm-hmm. clear. A handful. Yeah. It is clear that there's uh, an international connection because they were all Chinese nationals. Well, they, this, is a, this is an old story in one sense. I, I remember back in the year, uh, uh, had have been 2001, before 9-11, uh, we did a series of stories uh, uh, for about human tra- about smuggling for sex is what we 
turned it. And we dealt with generally the Asian smuggling rings that were bringing women in from places like Korea and China and putting them in, in these massage parlors and brothels. Sometimes they weren't just massage parlors. They were just out-and-out brothels. They had steam rooms, et cetera, et cetera, but they were brothels. And this was the deal that was going down in the Asian community way back when. And there was a, a route. There, was broker, there were brokers in Korea who would get women, uh, put together a, a travel package, and the woman would come to the United States, and they would have to work off the debt. And they knew this. They knew this. This was part of their deal. It wasn't like they were coming into it with eyes wide, you know, wide open, thinking they were going to work in a, in a restaurant. Uh, and this was a particular subset of the Korean community. That was what was happening. Now, that still fits the definition of human trafficking. Why is that? You have debt bondage, in a sense. Oh, I see. Work, work five years here at the uh, Happy Moon uh, massage parlor, and that pays off your uh, your debt. That's a very interesting yeah. distinction. Say again? That's a very interesting distinction. I, um, uh, I, I work in the uh, IT industry, mm-hmm. and there has been in the past and is now a very large... Uh, influx of, uh, say, uh, uh, Thai individuals, uh, Chinese, Japanese, mm-hmm. um, uh, and Indian individuals. And they, they have mm-hmm. these firms that send them on their visas to the U.S. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, normally you would, there would be like a 23% uh, charge to the business to mm-hmm. send somebody out. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I make a hundred an hour, they did charge one hundred and twenty-four dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. But what they do, what these are doing and have been doing, is they will charge the one hundred and twenty-four dollars an hour and only pay the individual coming here thirty or twenty-five, mm-hmm. and they keep the rest of the money. And they can't, and because they're sponsored, you know about the the sponsorships. I've heard of, yeah, basically I know what it's about. Yeah, well, the legal requirement is that there has to be money put forth to sponsor the person coming here who has the skills that an American mm-hmm. can't fill right. to get their work visas. And mm-hmm. essentially they become indentured servants because they never earn enough to pay off the requirements of their contract to become uh, independent. Uh, independent. So they're, they're basically... Uh, they have a, do they have a contract with these firms? Yes, these, yes, everything's uh, legal. It's just, uh, it's just not as, uh, um, as what the word would be, vicious or. Uh, but they, but they agree to 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 work for that. They get paid thirty dollars. Uh, once they once they get here, the reality yeah. is displayed, and they're stuck. It's just the same whether yeah. they're working IT or whether they're working uh, happy hand jobs, right? But the difference yeah, is that they're not—they're not working yeah, for twenty hours a day. Um, they actually have nice places to live, and you know. They, but yeah. they're, they're here in the Southern California. Who has the passport? Uh, the uh, agency. That the agency has a passport. You know, this yeah, is like very similar to what we've seen in some of these massage parlors from way back when. Well, uh, Amazon will have about, a passport. Yeah, reading about the one that, hap- that happened recently here in Seattle, the women were living in squalor. Um, mm. They they barely had enough money to feed themselves. They were working fifteen to twenty hours a day. 
a lot of them were sleeping on the the bench, the massage benches. Yeah. Uh, I just think it was an interesting parallel that the people I've worked with that are in this situation aren't living in squalor. They're not living six to a small room. They're right. living a nice life that is significantly better than they would be if they were in Punjab. Yeah, right. You know, or Mumbar. Uh, right. But it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, one of my close friends finally managed to get citizenship after a number of uh, mm-hmm. people wrote a testaments for him so mm-hmm. he'd get away uh, from the agency. Well, now, that's what, that was my next question. If somebody wanted to say, look, I don't want to work for this firm anymore. They go um, I want to go back to India. Give me back my passport. Yeah, they, they can happens? do that. Again, the, the object here for the re- the uh, brokerage company is no waves. And as long as they don't have they don't make waves or attract the attention of mm-hmm. law enforcement, they can make mm-hmm. boatloads of cash. They mm-hmm. they're making two to three times what uh, a uh, a search firm here would make. You know that. You know, is, any, is anybody is here. anybody looking into this? I mean, this sounds this sounds remarkably to me from what you described, like the kind of debt bondage that's covered by the trafficking laws. Uh, I mean, not that uh, I'm aware uh, of, no, because it you know yeah. it goes on today. Yeah. Um, wow. No, they they have to pay their way home, and then they just you know they they don't work for this company anymore. Yeah, and this is the this is what you know you're seeing. Look, we, when we saw human trafficking laws come to fore in the year 2000, here uh, we basically everybody was talking about the sex industry. You know, women coming in, working in massage parlors and brothels, and you know, you're generally foreign women. But you know, then we we see that there's a labor quotient to this. You know, the domestic workers coming in, the farm workers coming in, the factory workers coming in, the cleaning service workers coming in. And now you're telling me about the IT workers, and it yeah. sounds well. If you were, if you were like, to go, uh, if you were to go to any of the uh, large employment corporations in the industry, uh, mm-hmm. if you went to the Microsoft campus in Seattle. And you were to look around and you were to count the number of uh, Caucasian Americans versus mm-hmm. anyone else. And you'd mm-hmm. have maybe uh, 20% uh, like, look mm-hmm. like me. And everyone mm-hmm. else is from India, Pakistan, or the middle, or the, the Far East. Are they employees of, micro, of say, the, the computer company? It's, or it's they... uh, anyone's guess what their employment status is, whether they're on a, uh-huh. the, the, I think it's a 12-1B visa. The work, mm-hmm. the right to work visa, or they're, mm-hmm. um, uh, or they're being, or they're here on their own. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I you mean, have to check on each one individually. Well, if you look at the Microsoft campus, I have a um, a good friend who's from the Philippines who immigrated here on his mm-hmm. own with his family, and has been a citizen for most of his life. Um, he was there uh, in Microsoft uh, for years in the Seattle campus. Um, and it's, you know, there's just so many, there's, you know, 30,000 people working there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but India does a fabulous job of educating its people. <clears throat> English is a required, is required in school. Um, mm-hmm. and their IT training is pretty much par- uh, on parallel with anyone in the world. 
so that people they send are actually capable of accomplishing the work. You know, they're just they're, not being paid right. They're just they're just not being treated fairly. That's my my opinion. Yeah, and how do they get onto these companies to begin with? I guess that must be a, um, a pretty good network of uh, yes of referrals, and everybody knows. Yeah, well, there are uh, a number of these uh, companies out. You know, from the uh, that have the employee base in the foreign countries, and they're well-known in the United States. And because all the uh, T's are crossed and I's are dotted, um, they just pay. Well, are these companies based here, or are they based they there? They have, just, just like, uh, say, uh, a Mercedes or a Honda, they will have mm-hmm. a North American uh, facility corporate mm-hmm. facility. And mm-hmm. so there will mm-hmm. be the main facility in uh, in whatever whatever country they're mm-hmm. based in. And then they'll have mm-hmm. uh, an agency in New York or a West Coast, or if they're large, one on each. If mm-hmm. they're really large, they'll have one in Chicago also. Well, what you told me about the taking of the passport, uh, uh, that's they, like a red they, flag to me. The credentials are kept locally by uh, mm-hmm. a representative, you know, you, could, you might uh, uh, equate it to a union rep. Mm-hmm. There's a representative on site, mm-hmm. uh, and then all the paperwork is, is in his possession. And it's not, they're making more money than they should, but individuals mm-hmm. are not, um, they're not shackled to their desks. So yeah. they can take vacations, grab their passports, go home and visit family. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it, I, you know. Well, that 14-year-old girl in Florida, <laughs> she traveled without anybody except herself yeah. and went home to see her parents after making X amount of dollars. But this is, you know, I've been doing this since the late 70s, and it's, it's always mm-hmm. been like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember uh, I was working for Great Western. Uh, it's a bank that was out here in the uh, California, California. In, in L.A., and mm-hmm. we needed some uh, work on a, a small computer system. And so they brought mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people in from Canada. And they were indentured. It was horrible what, they, what, the, what the company that was sending them was doing to them. Mm-hmm. So this has been around for a very long time. I'm surprised this hasn't uh, uh, been exposed more. It might be because it... Uh it does. It's not as titillating. It's not as desperate sounding. And the individuals are not. They're they they're not being threatened in, in any way. They're just being exploited. I mean, again, they can just pick up and go home if they want. But they don't want. Yeah, but do do, do they have that? Do they have that debt over their head? Do they have to pay back the travel expenses? What do oh, they absolutely. have to do? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah they got it. They have to. They you know. So if they go home, they still have to pay uh, the sponsorship fee. They have to repay them. Yeah. Yeah, it's but a they racket. Paid a portion. Yeah, they paid only a portion of what uh, the, the, the fee right. would be. They're hundred dollars or whatever. Right. So, so I'm uh, I work for uh, Oracle. I don't know if you ever heard of them. No, I don't stop. Never heard of them. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, huge uh, database company. Billions mm-hmm. of dollars. Right. So I'm an Oracle consultant, and I am uh, an employee of a secondary company that Oracle. Pays. Mm-hmm. Oracle has a contract with them for for people, and mm-hmm. 
then Oracle says, okay, you have a job here, and go take your people and go do that job. So Mm -hmm. um, there is a cost for my services to that agency. Mm -hmm. And they take their margin and pay me the rest. Mm -hmm. And all of that's known up front. Right, and you get you get a you get a good margin on that. I mean, you well, get a they, good... you know they're you know it's twenty to twenty five percent is industry standard, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, so, and then when I negotiate for what I want, and then they go back to the client ultimately that pays, and says, mm-hmm. "Okay, um, is this okay?" And then we negotiate from there. Mm-hmm. So I get what I what I requested or agreed to. Mm-hmm. So it's not an issue. I mean, you're nobody. You're not an immigrant. You're not nobody's no. taking a passport or whatever, or saddling you with a debt. Right. That's normally how it works, but that is not right. necessarily how some of these uh, companies that bring people from uh, out of country. But see, these people are bruised and broken. You're not going to find them living in a hovel somewhere. Absolutely not. And you're not going to find they're them being well forced edu- to uh, perform yeah. oral sex 175 times a day they're for 25 well, yeah, bucks yeah, a customer. Yeah. They're well-educated, they're highly skilled in the profession, and they live a comfortable life. They have a car and an apartment. But that doesn't mean they're not being exploited. (laughs) It's correct. So uh, I can see why, you know, it would be very difficult to to scream and yell. Mm -hmm. Um, See, you'd have to actually go and look at each contract with each business and and see how it's all working out. But I know a number of people that I've worked with over the years that were just getting screwed royally. And did they complain, or did there's nothing they could do? Nothing they could do. Because mm-hmm. even though it was a crappy situation, uh, like the person that, that got his citizenship was a friend of mine that I worked with for years. Mm-hmm. Um, even as he was being exploited, was making 300 to 400 times what he would if he mm-hmm. home. Well, that's mm-hmm. the argument on how wonderful slavery was. After all, would you rather be working on this lovely plantation getting whipped once a day or be back in the jungle being eaten by a tiger twice a day? That's the same kind of logic. But, <clears throat> yes, but he still, he had a really nice car and a great apartment, and he was out mm-hmm. with the girls uh, every, you know, on the weekends. He was mm-hmm. having a great mm-hmm. time, but he just mm-hmm. wasn't getting paid what he should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's basically where they, uh, where, how they can justify. Right. Uh, some some cases they were making, even though they were being exploited, they were making more a month than his entire family at home would make in a year. Mm-hmm. And they and a lot of this money went home. They get shipped home. Well, this is what we saw in the early, you know, in the earlier days when the sex trafficking. Uh, and uh, uh, the woman would come over here knowing full well what they were going to do. Uh, and, yes, it was a traffic situation. But they were, you know, they were free to roam around, um, you know, roam around the city and uh, in some cases. And then uh, they were able to, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, get their money and send it home. Well, and then pay off the mamasan what they owed. Yeah. It wasn't always all that rosy, though. Some of these women, you know, had a rough time uh, because they had to pay for meals. They had to pay for, you know, condoms. They had to pay for everything else. uh, Guys, that's like on The Bachelor. 
where the, the women have to bring their own clothes. They don't get to eat the meals you see and eat on TV because that chewing makes too much noise, so they have to buy their own food first. Okay. <laughs> it's nothing like you see on TV. We had a romantic dinner. She's there in a lovely gown. She had to buy her own lovely gown. <laughs> You know, in talking about trafficking, it's really, uh, uh, you know, the local authorities are becoming much more uh, conscious of it from what I'm seeing and much more aggressive in going after it. Uh, but still, these are hard cases to make. Uh, I'm not going to. Well, especially deny when, you, that. when the, uh, in the case of the, the prostitution, after a woman has been in that lifestyle for a while, especially if it's been good to her, they're going to go back. Well, you know, that's that's the other thing that we don't understand because, you know, we're just not our world. Uh, there have been plenty of stories of young women, uh, not necessarily young teens, but even you know, late teens and early 20s, who are really taken in and sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, captivated by their pimps. And they'll do anything for them. And they know what they're doing, but they just see it differently. Yeah, uh, even without even without that. pimps, because only what is it four percent of working women uh, have pimps. The rest are independent. Yeah. Or, uh, well, uh, but even the ones that that uh, are in are in traffic situation who aren't enamored with pimps. For example, uh, there was one who was unfortunately murdered. She was working uh, from Tacoma, Portland, Spokane. She was a teenager high school age and that's what she did on her summer vacation mm -hmm. and she loved it she uh she loved the lifestyle she loved the travel she liked the sex she liked meeting new and interesting people she liked the people she worked with and when summer was over she'd made herself a nice little chunk of money had a wonderful time and would go back to school mm -hmm. and uh her dad said you know hey you know this is what she likes to do she didn't do drugs you know, she just liked to travel, liked to have sex, and liked the people she hung out with. And so straight-out prostitution, call girl service, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the problem, you know, we're seeing is that uh, in some of these traffic situations, some of the women do disappear. Uh, and there's one case here in New York where they're dealing with somebody who's disappeared, a girl from Pennsylvania. Uh, and she had a run-in with her about something conflict with another girl and she's gone yeah they don't know where she is uh a couple of women who were in a trafficking situation that's charged here a couple of weeks ago uh we have a uh they died from drugs they were beholden to drugs and they they died sometimes not accidentally and, you know it's possible that it could be it could be a, a, a intentional overdose, or intentionally supplied overdose. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of drugs are out there now that you know they're laced with fentanyl, and people just don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, I mean that's the problem with the stuff being illegal. Same thing with the prostitution being uh, being criminal. Uh, if uh, you know, I'm all in favor of unionization, legalization, uh, or decriminalization rather of uh, prostitution. Mm -hmm. Uh, as, as one uh, way on the air said, there's no difference between it being legal and illegal. The same people are still in control. Mm -hmm. But decriminalized, that's a big mm -hmm. difference. 
you don't have the mm. same people in control, whether it's legal or illegal. Uh, mm. But when you've got someone who is kidnapped or beaten to the point of near death, and they go to the they go to the police, the police say, "Well, what do you expect?" You know, that's what you get for uh, for being in your line of work. Occupational yeah, hazard. I, I don't I don't deny that was what the, the attitude was. I think we're seeing today a more uh, nuanced, uh, enlightened approach, if you will. Uh, with some of the local police departments. I know the New York NYPD has a trafficking unit that will not arrest the women. They will get them out of the situations, tell them, look, you can leave this, uh, but they will go after the organizers or the, the pimps, if you will, or the mamasons who are running the thing and shut them down. We have a big problem here in parts of Queens where there's very open prostitution in parts of uh, Flushing, which is a big Asian neighborhood. And I expect there's probably going to be some sort of crackdown soon because the papers are all screaming about you know, how open it is. And there have been a few cases where some girls have died. Well, you know, the, uh, I was just going to say something brilliant. <laughs> and I got distracted. It suddenly escaped my mind. Uh, Mark, do you know what I was thinking? Uh, yes, you were <laughs> thinking that the chicken breast I bought you was delicious. It was, yeah. That uh, he, did, he did buy me a nice chicken breast, Anthony. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Did you cook it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I just, uh, I just, you know, asked the lady to stick it in a bag and hand it to me. Yeah, and she did. She did. She was under heavy pressure from Mamasan to do that. So, <laughs> Put the uh, breast in the bag. We're talking about human trafficking, and one would suspect that uh, there is a profit motive behind it. Uh, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, dinero are we talking about here? As a, well, as a you know, economy. I don't think the money doesn't flow necessarily to the to the women's. We're talking about sex trafficking the women. I'm talking uh, about they, the guys they, behind the scenes. No, they they can you know they they can make uh, uh, these are just you know play money numbers. You know you can get a few thousand dollars a day uh, with a little stable of women, or if you're working a massage parlor operation, you know it's much much higher than that. I was referring to as a global economy. The, oh, the overall. Billions, I've I heard, suspect. Yeah, I've heard figures of billions, but, uh, you know, it's, nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. Now, we're always talking about the, the sex aspect here. But looking at these uh, hypothetical figures that people keep tossing around, 68% of these people are, are uh, slave labor. Well, there's the point. I was, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we're not just, it's not just the sex business. There's other things going on here. There's the domestic workers, and we've seen this in a number of foreign national cases where uh, well-to-do foreign nationals uh, bring workers, domestics in from overseas, and they keep them in miserable conditions. You know, they beat them, they have them sleep on the floor, uh, they don't feed them well, they finally they run out and get the cops. All right. <laughs> hey, is this like working in radio? <laughs> well, yeah. well, he didn't want the cops to come in. No, no, he certainly didn't. Because they had opened up the record jackets and stuff. Open up the record jackets. You know, yeah. it, rain, it would rain. Take like the plastic powder. covers off. Yeah. No, that really bothers me. Oh, these sex traffic, sex traffic, sex traffic. Meanwhile, you have guys being brought in. What does it say? At a minimum, absolute minimum, 35% of the undocumented workers uh, in San Diego or human trafficking. They thought they were coming here legally. Thought they were coming here legally. 
thought they had jobs waiting for them, which they did. But their passports were taken away. Everything was taken away. And they were threatened, oh, if you try to go get help, you're the one who's the criminal. You'll go to prison. Uh, well, I think we have, a, we have a situation a couple years ago, Mark, you probably remember this, where the Southern Poverty Law Center sued some company uh, that was using slave labor. And they had all these, these undocumented workers work for them. And they went, yeah, 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 we're not paying you. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> He got sued and won. We're going to take a 60-second break to let our plethora of local stations identify themselves. <laughs> we'll be right back in about 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored. In addition to buying all of Anthony M. DeStefano's books, buy all the books you can possibly find by Burl Bear, B-U-R-L-B-A-R-E-R. Yes, I've been cranking out true crime masterpieces for over 20 years, and I'm stunned when I read them myself. I wrote this. Don't they know any better? Ah, yeah. Starting with Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne. That's the one where the publisher went to prison. Uh, Mom said kill. Mom said kill. Mom said don't kill. Mom said take it over. <laughs> and somewhere in there, a kid didn't get the dirt. They, oh, yeah, that was a tragic story. Yeah, Mom said kill. Barbara Opal promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. Tell you one thing, kid never got the dirt bike. And now, back to True Crime Uncensored, formerly hosted by Burl Bear and Don Waldman. But Don Waldman is dead. True Crime Unsplintered, Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And Mark C.G. Boyer. You know. Yeah, I'm over here. Yeah, he's over there. Uh, our guest today is Anthony M. DeStefano, famed true crime author, award-winning journalist, uh, his car is a rack on top because he's a rack on tour. Hey. <laughs> yes. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. Hey, nice rack, Anthony. Uh, how do you spend your busy days? Anthony, I'm just well, you know, I mean, I work, I work, uh, you know, in New York for one of the newspapers, Newsday, and uh, I'm based out of police headquarters. We have a press room there with all the other newspapers, and uh, we're more selective. I don't have to chase every sort of little crime story that comes down the pike. But I spend my time, you know, digging into cold cases, uh, digging into police policy. Uh, covering a couple of major trials. You know, I got involved in the El Chapo case. Um, <laughs> they didn't dig a tunnel, a, did you? No, but I was, 
my job, uh, I had a very discreet job. I had to wait for the verdict to be announced. And as soon as I heard the guilty on the first count, I left the courtroom, got my phone back, and made a call to the news desk to tell them what the verdict was. It was no surprise, but that's my, that was my job. That was a rough was one. Interesting. <laughs> that was a well. Actually, you know, it's very intense. You had to get into the courtroom by. It's like you're almost being screened for a, an airline. You had to take your shoes off, your belt off, and go through a magnetometer because they were really worried about El Chapo doing something nefarious either communicating with his underlings or somehow doing something. In any case, that didn't happen. Uh, and, uh, uh, I have another case coming up uh, uh, in a week or so. It's going to be the case of the Howard Beach jogger uh, who was killed a couple of years ago in uh, the weeds near her home. Uh, that was a pretty big case. And, uh, you know, I deal with uh, uh, legal issues and things of that sort. So. If uh, the great, late, great Don Waldman were here, he would share the story of of uh, before they had that type of security, uh, he's in court, and uh, either his client or the other client jumps up and had a knife uh, yep. and or a gun or whatever the hell it was, and attacks the other person in the courtroom. Yeah, well, we, there was a case uh, uh, where uh, the current Queens District Attorney, Richard Brown, and his first day on the bench when he was a judge, uh, they Somebody pulled out a gun and started shooting in the courtroom. Yikes. Ducked down behind the bench. And he got the name Duck Down Brown. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> that stayed with him. Uh, was, that's better than the judge up in the Northwest who was reading porn and masturbating under his robe. Excellent. Uh, while the case was going on. Well, talk about distraction. Yeah, please don't approach the bench. <laughs> Um, when I was young, when I was uh, much younger, I got on uh, many, many juries. I just got picked a lot, and I was in a case where roommates got into a fight, and everyone was, you know, got arrested for it. And one fella was charged with uh, using his martial arts skills, and in particular, some nunchucks. If you don't know what those are. Those are two solid cylinders uh, connected by a string or rope or chain in the, uh, in the middle. And then you swing them around and smack people with them. Oh. Uh, Bruce Lee was famous for using these, these little this toy. They, a defense attorney, this was his first live trial. The judge had all kinds of other court business going on because all of the parolees went through her court. So there was a steady traffic of people in and out of the room talking to a clerk that was on the side of the room. So that was very distracting. And at one point, this, this poor defense attorney picks the nunchucks up, walks over to his client, and is about to hand them to him <laughs> to ask him, are these yours? And the judge, of course, distracted from whatever else was going on in the court, caught it out of the corner of an eye, of her eye, and I still can hear her screech of no. Oh, I thought she was going to, he was handing it to his client to go whack her one? <coughs> well, you don't, you know, you don't give a client, you know, you know, a defendant a weapon. Say, here's this loaded gun. Is this the one you use to kill everybody? Yes, it is. Yes, hey, watch this. <laughs> Not a good idea. Not a good idea at all. Oh, no. Well, 
Sounds like you lead a great life of excitement there in uh, New York City. Uh, it's not quite all that exciting. You know, I mean, crime is down here. Uh, so we sort of scrounge around to uh, uh, come up with good story ideas. Uh, the human trafficking thing is something that's been taken off a little bit here. Uh, we had uh, a couple of cases go down recently. And there's one federal case out in Brooklyn where uh, it's an Asian case. Uh, it seems to be a, a sex trafficking case. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, we, we, we stay busy, uh, but there are days when, you know, uh, you can uh, sort of chill out a little bit. And, you know, so when, when do you uh, write uh, your brilliant books that we are always a pleasure to tell people to buy on the show? Well, thank you. I... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, on the nights and, you know, nights, weekends, a little vacation time. The interesting thing is that a lot of the books I've written uh, involve cases, trials, that I experienced or sat through and covered. So you already have basic knowledge, a basic, you know, timeline in your head. So you're able to put this together relatively easily, and you also have documentation where, you know, at least you know where to get it. And, yeah, that that uh, is a problem for true crime writers everywhere. <laughs> if you go to do a case, you have to find out what the policy is on getting court documents. Uh, in Kansas, for example, I passed on a case in Kansas because I found out under the Freedom of Information, you ask for the police reports, uh, mm -hmm. you get the cover page only. Mm. Anything else is up to the discretion of the police department. If they like you and you're going to portray them nicely... Then uh, they'll cooperate. Otherwise, you get mm. bupkis. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is different. If you do, you know, cases in various states, each each state is different. Florida is pretty good about disclosure. Um, other cases, other uh, states may not be. And New York is sort of in the middle. Uh, the process is a little cumbersome. Federally, it's good in that if you want to get trial or court materials. You just simply get a PACER account, which is an electronic system, and you pay ten cents a page uh, for anything you copy, and you know you can access stuff. So that's pretty good. Uh, but you're right. You know, each state is different. Well, I'll tell you, there was a uh, book I did. I like to have my own work. The book that came out is called Headshot, and that involved multiple trials and appeals to the state supreme court. Uh, two mistrials. The one where the judge stands up and screams in the courtroom, uh, this case has given me eccentric headache number 830. I'm out of here. He gets up and storms mm -hmm. out over the prosecutorial misconduct. Mm -hmm. I went to do a book on this case, and I went to the state uh, uh, headquarters, whatever you call it, library, where they had this entire room full of boxes of everything uh, from, mm -hmm. like, all the cases, all the appeals, and the lady says, what would you like a copy of? And I said, absolutely everything. <laughs> and she looked at me in dumbstruck and said, no one has ever asked for absolutely everything before. Mm. I mm. said, well, she says, how much there was a room. I had to rent a van to get all the boxes to investigate this case. I how, never, how much did that cost you? I never got a bill. Really? Never. Oh, wow. I think they couldn't figure out what to charge me or just decided to look the other way. If they, mm -hmm. And there's another case where I ran out of money. They wanted $5 a page 
for things that hadn't already been transcribed? Now, talk about limiting well, access. Five dollars. Wow. Can you imagine you're doing a true crime book and they want five dollars a page? That can be the, the price here in the city for uh, uh, getting a copy from a court stenographer. Yeah, that's the way they do it. you got to get it from the stenographer. And then we had a very interesting one where I get contacted by an attorney. His client uh, was sentenced to X amount of years on different charges, served uh, concurrently. It was time for him to get out of prison, and they wouldn't let him out. Mm-hmm. And why not? Well, he hasn't served these all, uh, you know, uh, consecutively. And But everybody knew it was public. It was in the paper. It was on TV everywhere. But yet the sentencing documents were all missing. They thought maybe I yeah. had them. Yeah. They were missing yeah. from mine. They were missing from everywhere. They even brought the judge and the stenographer in to testify on what the sentence was. But that was not deemed acceptable enough. Well, you know, I've had pretty good luck with the federal system. Uh, I've been the Library of Congress and the National Archives. Uh, You can get materials through them. Uh, If you go to the research centers like in Washington or the regional centers where they give you files and allow you to look at them. Uh, So that's worked to my advantage. Uh, but um, when I did the Costello book, uh, you know, Top of them, the, uh, uh, I had to get stuff through the Library of Congress and the National Archives. And this was old stuff. This was really old paper. And uh, it was wonderful to look at, but it took time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, it, it did make the story, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not all easy, especially if you're doing old cases. You go way back in time, uh, which is fascinating, but still, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a, it's, a, it's a business. You know, it's, it's a, it, takes, it takes time. Now, a technique that I use that people think is absolutely insane, and it probably is, <laughs> knowing me, is I had a, uh, an apartment at that time that was on the top floor, bay windows, big living room. Instead of keeping things in files, which I can never really do well, I kept them in stacks. And at night, I'd leave the windows open. And it would blow the papers all over the room. And I'd have to put them all back together in the appropriate stacks because they were all mixed together. And it was by that method that I found things, associations, cross-references, discrepancies that I never would have found if I would have kept them in order. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes (laughs) that can work because if everything's in this little silo, uh, you may not cross over into the next silo unless, like you did here, you jumble it all together. Uh, I've had that happen a few times. It was very helpful. And in one particular case, I discovered that the... The murderer had, uh, because of that, had discovered that he had tried to stop himself from doing it. Went through great pains to try to get people to accompany him to the crime because if there was someone with him, he wouldn't have done it. And he worked valiant knowing what he was going to do, which was to rape and murder this little girl who was the daughter of a friend of his. He tried to get the grandmother to go back with him. He tried to get all sorts of people. Finally, get someone who was a heavy drinker who passed out in the van on the way there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, I discovered discrepancies and errors in the prosecution's timeline uh, by that method. Didn't do anybody any good except for made the, the book perhaps more accurate or more interesting, but uh, didn't help the defense. Didn't help. Uh, didn't help anybody much uh, at all. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the prosecutors can. Uh, what was one of the, uh, the prosecutors said? The first one through the door gets the deal. <laughs> oh yeah, well. And the first one through the door wasn't the one who should have got the deal <laughs> at all. Mm -hmm. But that's the same thing on why the, uh, as I say, the good drug dealers get busted, the bad ones don't. Because the bad ones will roll over on the nice ones and stay on the street. It's a very strange world we live in, Master Jack, as the song goes. You must have seen some miscarriages of justice in your career. Uh, I, yeah, I have. I mean, there have been some cases where people have been dead to rights, guilty, and they get off. Um, you scratch your head trying to figure out how that happened. Well, you know, um, the glove doesn't fit. You have must acquit. That's right. Yeah, I know. But, you know, you never tell the juries. You just never tell. Never tell. Mm. You can never tell ahead of time, really. Um, what about jury nullification? Do they have that uh, over there? No, it's a concept we understand. Um, I'm sure it's happened here. Um, I think it's probably been a quotient in certain cases where uh, the jurors come hell or high water just would not convict this guy. Interesting. And that's the way it was. And no what the evidence. What about the no remember the DeLorean case? Oh, what yeah. a crock of crock. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, the jury not only didn't find him guilty, they gave somebody else hell. Yeah, well, they deserved it. Yeah. Um, have you been on a jury yourself? No, I came to within one person of being picked for a jury. Like, well, as I mentioned in my, uh, in my youth. <laughs> uh, I've never been I, on a jury. I've been called, but I hadn't been, I've never picked a serve. I've been on 12 juries. 12 juries. Well, you should make a career of it. Yeah, no, I haven't been on great. one in, in uh, you know, 15. He obviously has. He's been on 12 juries. Yeah, I bet the yeah. pay was good, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> Maybe we could and, human traffic uh, outsource jurors, you know, like from Mumbai. No, I found uh, I found the experience interesting, rewarding, and uh, everyone involved was uh, diligent in following the instructions and coming to a decision that made sense. Well, I'm very diligent in following the guidance of our brilliant, erudite, and ill-informed producer. <laughs> Anthony, always a pleasure to have you come to us. Yeah, he Thank says you. it's time for us to go. Buy all of Anthony M. Stefano's books, please. And if you know someone's being human trafficked, uh, don't ignore it, okay? Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, guys. All right, bye-bye. Hey, Burl. Yes, Burl. Hey, Burl, what's next? What's next? Matthew Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light of the Clouds and OutlawCrime.com. of you and me It's like a book elegantly bound but in a language that you can't read just yet You gotta spend some time love You gotta spend some time with me And I know that you